You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. Lanyap Podcast, this is Greg Stokes with my brother Doug. Today is July 12th, 2023. Interesting news came out today with regards to uh, CPI or Consumer Price Index. Over the last 12 months, CPI grew 3%. In June of 2022, it peaked at like 9.1%. So it's come come down quite dramatically since that point in time. I'm going to read this article from the Wall Street Journal. The headline is, Inflation eased to 3% in June, slowest pace in more than two years. Inflation cooled last month to its slowest pace in more than two years, giving Americans relief from painful period of rising rates, but remaining strong enough to leave the Federal Reserve on course to keep raising rates. The CPI climbed 3% in June from a year earlier, and basically reiterates what I just said. This is below expectations. The market was expecting that inflation would rise 3.2%, and it came in at 3%. Doug, I want to get your thoughts on on the... uh, the underlying data as it relates to the CPI and where you think that leaves, leads us. We've talked um, about the biggest contributor to the CPI um, calculus, which is shelter and how that impacts things. And I really want to get your thoughts on this. And And do you think inflation is in the rearview mirror? Yeah. The uh, So the, the numbers across the board are, are pretty good from an inflationary perspective. And the reason is that inflation is going hand in hand with what the Federal Reserve is going to do. The markets in general have been positively reacting to uh, potential pauses by uh, the Federal Reserve. And, and Goldman Sachs said today's report is consistent with our view that Fed tightening is in its final innings. We continue to expect a final 25 basis point hike at the July FOMC meeting to 5.25 to 5.5 percent, followed by an unchanged policy for the remainder of the year. The uh, the biggest uh, you know, component of this being shelter. So, three uh, percent inflation. Uh, the shelter component, which is a third of inflation, came in at seven point eight percent. The chatter amongst the investment industry is that's that's incredibly overstated because of the lag effect with the shelter. And so, with shelter being at seven point eight percent and it being a third of the CPI measure. The shelter component alone accounts for almost all of the inflation numbers, meaning there is either no inflation or de- deflation amongst uh, the rest of the basket. And uh, that is something that the Federal Reserve should pay attention to because uh, I think the, tar- the mandate and the target is 2% or you know, slightly above 2%. What you don't want is sort of a def- deflationary cycle and... Um, and I think a lot of the the news and reaction amongst participants in markets is uh, Federal Reserve should pause its rate hiking policy sooner rather than later to avoid um, this rollover effect. And and uh, so that's something we're going to be watching for the back half of this year. In terms of markets, I think the most amazing thing about what's happened in the first half of 2023 is just the amazing ability for the market as a whole to sniff out um, and the inflation numbers and basically uh, call the shot. And I think that that's what's happened this year is that uh, the rebound specifically in tech stocks and the Magnificent Seven, but the, just the market in general, as in my opinion, can be largely attributed to 
um, foreshadowing that inflation would come down in a dramatic fashion. And that's what we see. So it's called the Magnificent Seven. I haven't heard that yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, there, there were so many like versions of Fang and Fam Mag and all this stuff. And so now it's Magnificent Seven. You can't make uh, an acronym out of the seven, I guess, at this point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. One thing that has me a little bit concerned about is that Jim Cramer is now pounding the table to say that um, to buy, continue to buy and hold the Magnificent Seven. So you could likely expect some sort of correction in that area of the market just based upon his track record. Right. Exactly. If you, if, you basically want to go inverse Kramer. Um, whatever he does, do the opposite, and you're probably going to be okay. He was also, if you look uh, historically at what he's proponed, he was. He, there's clips of him on the internet the days before uh, Bear Stearns crashed, talking about how Bear Stearns was going to be all right and everything. So, but yeah, it's. I, I really found this um, this inflation data to be uh, pretty interesting. If you look at the underlying data, like you're saying, there's a lot of things that were specifically related to shelter shelter was like a lagging indicator in the june 2022 underlying data and meaning it was underreported in the june 2022 data and likewise it's overreported in in this particular um, most recent june 2023 data but if you look at the, a lot of the things that were driving the the narrative and the headlines back then they become sort of non-issues today and actually are bringing down the the um, overall uh, inflationary numbers, specifically like gasoline last summer was through the roof. That's come down 26% year over year. Fuel oil, which was up 100% in 2022, June of 2022, is down 36%. Used cars, which I remember that used car people, used cars were like one of the best performing asset classes in 2022. If you would have taken all of your money out of the stock market and just bought a bunch of like clunkers, you would have done much better on a rate of return standpoint than by being invested in the stock market. That's changed, I guess, supply chain um, issues or whatever have been resolved and demand, et cetera. Used car prices are down 5.2% year over year. Um, so it'll be, it, it's, it's, we're at a sort of inflection point. And you're right, the market, uh, the market has been able to sniff all of this stuff out and look where we are year to date. For those people that were sitting on the sidelines and waiting um, till things calm down to invest their money. Like we've talked about several times, we have several times we've have, we have conversations with people that tell us, you know, things look really uncertain right now. And usually that's when the prices are in the, in the stock market are down, but overall in the economy. And, um, and I, I think I'm going to hold off on investing until things, um, uh, look a little bit more stable, but the you're right. The market has an incredible ability to sniff that, that, um, any sort of recovery out. And usually the markets lead the economy about two or three quarters in advance. And um, perhaps we, we we are entering sort of an economic slowdown, but the market may be seeing through that. Um, and that's the sort of bull case. The bear case, obviously, is you have a lot of enthusiasm right here and you have a lot of weak hands like Jim Cramer, for example, who are now pounding the table to, to buy all this stuff. When he was he was also saying basically to sell NVIDIA. He was a huge NVIDIA guy for anybody who had followed Mad Money for the, for um, a you know, significant period of time. He talked about NVIDIA all the time. When NVIDIA was like $130 a share in December, he said, I can't, I think NVIDIA is a flop and I'm selling all my NVIDIA. And of course, NVIDIA now is like, I don't even know what it is. It's like over $400 a share. And now he's talking about buying it again. Um, so, it, it it wouldn't surprise me at all if we could have have some sort of correction. It's been a really nice run. 
uh, year to date. But again, corrections are not like a, an abnormal thing. It's a part of uh, investing in the markets. Um, and, but here we are after all the negativity, all of the skepticism from the broader community and the markets are having a really good year so far. Um, and we'll see what happens for the remainder of the year. Yeah, I think, um, you know, that's just the nature of prognosticators and pundits is, um, you know, always just basically following the herd and, and not really sticking with any sort of investment philosophy or framework. And, uh, and then the people that follow that sort of uh, logic end up at some point just, um, you know, falling into the trap. And I think one thing that people have to remember that, you know, there is a, there's a plan and a process with any investment approach and that, you know, people that you hear on TV are not acting in your best interest. They're there for entertainment and, uh, you know, taking action based upon, uh, whether the, there's fear or greed in the punditry that there's a, there's some downside effects associated with that. That also um, goes for people who have been wildly successful in the past too. Like in January of this year, Michael Burry, who's featured in the big short as, a uh, the, this guy who basically uh, called the subprime mortgage crisis and returned to his investors like a thousand plus percent return over a short period of time, posted a cryptic tech tweet that said "sell" essentially, meaning like he was in, he was thinking that we were approaching like a a colossal bear market or depression or whatever, and then. Like three months later, he said he was, he was wrong to say that. But you, you basically, that's that goes for your very. He also said we're entering into a Weimar Republic hyperinflationary situation in in late 2021. So again, uh, none of these people really have any of uh, your best interests at heart and don't know anything about you. And are essentially their objective is to hopefully get any sort of call correct so that they can go down in the annals of history as a, as one of the greats. And so, um, even though they've been potentially wrong over and over again, that right call could be legendary for them. So, um, anyway, let's move on and, and talk about just the economy in general. Um, jobs growth is slowing down. All this continues to be, uh, you know, quite strong on a relative basis to the point where, as we talked about last week, we're sort of hitting that Goldilocks scenario where inflation is cooling, yet the economy still is resilient in the face of that. Uh, this was from July 7th, Flight Radar. Uh, it says, yesterday was the busiest day for commercial aviation that we've ever tracked. We tracked 134,386 commercial flights on 6th July, and today is shaping up to be another busy day. More than 20 flights are already in the air right now. Um, so the, everything from a travel perspective, uh, spending jobs, uh, inflation coming down, uh, I don't think there was anybody at the end of last year that was calling for, uh, and, and I would probably say present company included calling for some sort of, uh, no or soft landing. And I think that that is, that is, uh, at least at this point in time, the direction everything's headed on the negative side of the equation uh there is and we've talked about this in the past a a commercial real estate uh potential crisis specifically in office that's brewing uh this is from uh levi james here says the amount of empty office space is now 1 billion square feet in the united states 
That's 48,125 floors, 529,000 feet high if it was all into one building. And so, um, as we've talked about, there's a, a commercial real estate issue specifically related to, to office where there's a lot of uh, maturing loans that need to be refinanced and will likely be underwater and, and what's going to happen with that area of the market. Um, but everywhere else is sort of humming at this point. Yeah, I mean, the, the office conundrum is really driven by people vacating downtown areas. And there is data that was published that we'll, we'll add on to the, the uh, attachments to the podcast notes that showed that like ranging from, and you can see this is sort of like self-evident, but you have like areas like San Francisco, this the cell phone usage data from 2019 to 2023 is like 29% of what it was. And that, uh, that is a, almost universal across the country with a ver- with very few exceptions. Like New Orleans, for example, is 50% of what it was in, uh, in 2019 in today. And then you have some really, you have some winners like Salt Lake City, for example, that's far in, in excess. But in general, downtowns are becoming less attractive and people are moving to the suburbs, et cetera. And so you have these offices that that people are working from home or they're, you know, for one reason or another, they may be living in the suburbs and working there or whatever. But that's a big issue. I read an article in the Wall Street Journal about the mayor of Boston who is offering a they're all they're also facing the same exact issue as everybody else. That particular mayor is offering uh, tax abatements for the conversion of office buildings to residential. Doug, you mentioned before we got on some statistics about the the number of vacancies and putting that into context. Can you go into the detail about that? It's I think it's pretty powerful. Yeah, I mean, I think the and let me pull this back up uh, in terms of the how big the vacancies are. Is that what you're talking about? Exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the, the U S has almost 1 billion square feet of empty office space. If stacked in a single office tower, it'd span over 48,000 vacant floors. Um, that is, uh, in, in New York city, there are 3,790 floors. So that's essentially, you know, what 15 New York cities that is unreal uh, of, of empty office space. Um, it's it's an unbelievable. It would span into outer space if it was stacked up on top of each other, and so uh, that's going to be a problem. But I mean, if the I, I think the great thing about humans in general is that we have the ability to adapt, and I'm sure there's going to be some adaptive use to this space specifically because we have a housing shortage, uh, and so you know, any of these buildings that can be converted to residential likely will be converted to residential. Another potential area of the economy where there's some slowing coming down. There's a big article in the Wall Street Journal this week related to um, to Walt Disney World and wait times at Walt Disney from 2019 compared to 2023. It looks like, and we'll, I'll just focus here on Magic Kingdom. It was about 45 minutes average wait time at at uh, any of the rides in Magic Kingdom in 2019. That's now down to a little more than 25 minutes uh, on Fourth of July 2023. So. Um, slow down in uh, Disney World. I don't know how much of that is really uh, economically driven, or and you know the cost of actually go, going to Disney World, which is now essentially like going to Europe at this right. point. It's ridiculous from an expense standpoint. Or uh, there's also political. You know, Disney's put itself in the political limelight in the last year 
uh, and is at odds with the governor of Florida. So I don't know uh, if that has an I impact. I doubt that on, has as much of an impact as just the, it was a sort of post-COVID boom. But again, you, you reference a, a pre-COVID 47-minute number in 2019. I mean, I, I, I think I went to Disney World in 2019, in Magic Kingdom specifically in 2019 with my kids. And not only is it as expensive as Europe, or if not more expensive, I was in those lines for 47 minutes, and, you've, and it's hot as all hell down there. And you've got kids that are all stressed out. Mom's stressed out because the kids are stressed out. It's not, a, it's not exactly what I envision as like a fun time. And then you're also paying like what you would be paying if you were going to go to have like a once in a lifetime vacation to Europe that does sound more fun. So I don't know if that's a collective realization as well, too. I do think that they, the company has a monopoly on like, like, for example, my kids during their early childhood watched all of the Disney shows nonstop. They that and if you compare like the, the theme parks themselves, if you compare them to like their competition in Six Flags SeaWorld and Legoland, there's it's just a much better product than those other competitors. But it's really they've really the 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 parks themselves. The most recent time that I went, it was not the most fun time as it relates to all those things that I just referenced. And if you really look at the the company itself, it is just it has gotten absolutely beaten up. There's been a recovery in a lot of these tech stocks, and Disney traded like a tech stock for a long time because they had Disney Plus. They launched, which is a pretty strong competitor to Netflix, Hulu, et cetera. They also own a big stake in Hulu. But if you, so this is a this is a something I saw on on uh, Twitter. If you invested one hundred dollars into Disney stock in 2015, eight years ago today, you'd have about seventy six dollars right now. Um, it's just been a tough yeah. a tough ride for them. They've They've been behind the eight ball. They're one of their biz- biggest biz- business segments besides parks is ESPN and ABC. And people are, are um, there was a massive, massive layoff at ESPN um, in the last week or two. Um, some of the, you know, Susie Colbert. Oh, really? I didn't see that. The, the, yeah, there was uh, some major personalities at ESPN that were laid off. I think really uh, what it is, is is Disney got distracted by so many different business lines and specifically with uh, Disney Plus, Bob Iger went all in on streaming and and distracted the company away from what was really making it successful, in my opinion, in uh, parks and IP. And uh, and that's been a a big... uh, drawback to, you know, at least from an investor's perspective in, in owning that company. Um, I don't really think Disney's going anywhere, anywhere, anytime soon from a, from a company perspective. And I think that, you know, somebody that has young kids, uh, we're already getting asked about Disney world. So I'm not really concerned about, uh, I'm going to delay it as long as possible. I think (laughs) for all the reasons Um, I stated. Yeah. The look, I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't want to take a, a three-year-old and an 18-month-old that are not going to remember it to Disney and and deal with the hassle. I think my six-year-old is now um, at the point where he can appreciate it, but you know, maybe I can get him to wait another year or two. Um, I I think it would be fun as a parent, but at the same time, it's probably like com- completely stressful. Well, it's I think there's some certain people are Disney people as well too, and they go all in and go for like a week and all this stuff. I just that's. 
not my cup of tea. Yeah, it's like the it's like the kids' version of Vegas. Like you need to just only need to go for two nights <laughs> and uh, anything exactly. more than that. I mean, that's what uh, we actually did, and, and yeah. I'm still complaining about it. Um, but we went for I think two nights, <laughs> and it was like it just gets to be too much. Um, yeah. But okay, so this is we're in the midst of summertime right now, and I saw an interesting uh, blurb on the first jobs of of uh, certain certain famous individuals and famous. Uh, uh, entrepreneurs and et cetera. And I wanted to list some of the, some of these just to give you some context is that everybody starts somewhere before I'll get into that. My, I'll, I'll talk about my first job. I was a gro- a bag groceries at 15 years old at Langenstein's in Metairie. Um, but anyway, Steve jobs was an assembly line worker. Jeff Bezos was a McDonald's cook. Oprah was a cashier. Warren Buffett was a gum salesman. Elon Musk was a lumberjack, which I don't, that's, that sounds really out there. Michael Dell was a dishwasher, Barack Obama, ice cream scooper, Ray Dalio, golf caddy. Doug, what was your first job as a, uh, as a youngster? I was a, I was a greeter at the, uh, Volvo dealership on veterans in Metairie. <laughs> uh, and I also sold a, sold a car and got a commission for it, which was, uh, yeah, my first taste of what sales. Was the, what was the? Uh, I think the guy came, the commission. It was a. Uh, I think I got like eight hundred dollars at the That's time. That's huge. Yeah, it was awesome. I know. Um, you know, the, well, the guy came in to actually buy the car. Like, I don't think he wanted to be sold, and I happened to be the only one available at the time, and so. Uh, some guy. I think the total commission might might have been eight hundred dollars, and somebody split it with me because I actually like helped the guy pick a car <laughs> that's that's amazing i um, my i remember my salary or my hourly wage at langenstein's was like four dollars and 25 cents an hour and i would have to punch in and all yeah, that stuff some, like i think i was eight but i think i was eight dollars an hour or something yeah, like so that. Um, fortunately yeah. that's fortunately i'm i'm doing better than that was my first taste of uh, of the difference between uh stated wage and after-tax income. I remember getting my first paycheck and I saw all the deductions um, for for taxes and FICA. And uh, and I was like, oh my God, I, I don't think I, I, I felt like I didn't net anything uh, after tax. So um, yeah, that was a, that was a good taste of, uh, of being an American worker at that point in time. <laughs> yeah. So with, with that in mind, I wanted to to close this out with a quote that uh, that's that, that a lot of these the, in, youngsters, including ourselves, have had to accrue over time. But this is from L- Robert Lovett, who was a I think it was the U.S. Secretary of Defense during Truman's um, administration. Good judgment is usually the result of experience, and experience is frequently the result of bad judgment. There's no doubt about that. Right. Exactly. So, well. Yep. So guys, thanks so much for joining us today. If you enjoy this podcast, please give it five stars, share it with your friends and family. And we look forward to to, uh, hosting you guys next week. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com.
The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.